Welcome to Aussie Ambitions Podcast, where we meet with everyday Aussies that are pushing ahead with their goals and ambitions in life. Join your host, Scott Robert Springer, to explore the future of entrepreneurship, work-life balance, and reaching beyond your comfort zone. So stay tuned for some tips on living life the Aussie way. All right, welcome to Aussie Ambitions Podcast. Very excited to have another guest, a new guest today with us. It's Sarah Taylor. How are you, Sarah? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very good. Um, So just to introduce the topic, uh, I'll introduce Sarah as a transformational health coach. And uh, there's going to be lots of aspects what we can potentially cover today. So I'll just introduce you and maybe could you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, absolutely. Um, I call myself a a transformational health coach because really I'm that's where I've come from, my own my own journey, I suppose. Um, when I was 40, I was classified as obese. And then I went and lost 25 kilos without dieting whilst getting fit to climb a mountain. And um, subsequently, subsequently going through depression, I used my health and fitness, particularly my nutrition and my fitness, to pull myself out of the depression. And in the process, I got accidentally even fitter than when I climbed the mountain and got into bodybuilding at age 42. Um, and won a state title at my first show. And then subsequently, by the age of uh, 50, I'm now 21 times world world champion. Ah, so I'm glad we got right into it because that, <laughs> that is a huge headline, uh, some massive achievements there. So congratulations on, on that. And I'm sure there's a lots of stories. And I understand you're an experienced podcast guest. Yes. <laughs> which we appreciate because, uh, you know, you're, you're aware of how this works and potentially it's an ability to connect with people. Yeah. Uh, give the opportunity for people to get to know uh, yourself and, and the journey, the areas, the takeaway bits that they can use for their own uh, benefit. And uh, essentially, yeah, it's a look into the Australian way of doing things. Yeah. So um, fair to say, are you longtime resident or born and raised in Australia? No, I'm actually English. And then just like a lot of what I've what I've done, I guess, particularly in the last 10 years, it's all been a sort of kind of happy accident, really. Um Coming to Australia was also one of those happy accidents. I literally just woke up when I was about, when I was 29, that's right, just woke up about three o'clock in the morning. It was a very grey November in England, and uh, I just went, I have to go to Australia. No idea why. Um, didn't know anyone in Australia, no relatives in Australia, um, but it was one of those kind of, I guess, sliding doors moments. It was, it was like it was meant to be because two years prior to that, I'd been working in a job and I knew they wanted to expand into Australia. So I called up this company and said, look, I have to go to Australia. Can you give me the number of the guy in Australia? And it just turned out that he was in England for two days, right that day that I I called them. So I met them and it it was a software company. I've been in software and IT for 25 years. Um, So we agreed that I was going to take the software to Australia. And that's how I came to Australia. I arrived literally six weeks later. I shut down a company arrived in Melbourne with one suitcase of everything I owned in the whole world. Everybody told me I was completely crazy, but I just, I don't know, I just had to do it. And it was, it's been brilliant. Wow. It was the best thing I ever did. Okay. I think that's going to answer the question for a lot of people about how do people come to Australia? Um, yes, they can be born and raised or have family connections, but then there's definitely a, an immigration path, yes. uh, myself included in that. And so um, in your case, it was an employer. Is like an ins- employer-sponsored thing, or did you need to do work to comply with certain? It was it was a business-sponsored visa because I was actually bringing some software and customizing it to the Australian market. You, you have to make a business case if it's on a sponsored business visa. You have to make a case why this this person from overseas is the only person who could do the job. And quite literally, in our case, it, I was the only person who could do the job because I was bringing English software to Australia to customize it. So, so 
the business visa was what I came out on. Um, and then I was actually on a sponsored business visa for about eight years before I got permanent residency. And I, they changed the rules of the business visa and I almost fell foul of it. And I was 12 days away from being booted out of the country because I didn't have a visa. So it almost went horribly wrong. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm now a permanent resident. And like I say, I, 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 I love Melbourne. I've been in Melbourne for 19 years, but now I'm up in Queensland. And We'll probably dig into that, but literally that's been another complete spur of the moment thing. You know, I'm, 50, I'm 51 now and in the middle of a pandemic when Melbourne was all in lockdown, I just went, I have to go to Queensland and I, and here I am. Amazing. Okay. This is going to be good to, to really unpeel, <laughs> I think. Um, just capturing the, I guess, these uniquely Australian experiences and all of that, um, certainly being on the visa clock is, is something I think a lot of people can relate to who live here. So they've made it here, but perhaps not by a permanent means to begin with. And so there's always a little bit of this pressure about you have a permanent tie to the employer, um, which is all positive because you're still here and living life perhaps how you want to be. But there's a, perhaps a subtle pressure about longevity and, you know, like you said, 12 days left on the clock before the visa yeah. was expiring. How well, you, well, actually, um, I'll give you a very good example. You're absolutely right. It does. It just creates an underlying stress really um the the visa i came out on and the company that i worked with um that really kind of fell apart very very quickly like the company kind of fell apart very very quickly and after 6 months i i just had to get out of there so then i was faced with the the you know it's like well what do i do if i leave this company then i've got to find another visa and a lot of people are not prepared to sponsor a, a another person and i had an added I guess, impediment, because I was actually going overseas on a round-the-world trip as well. So it's like, okay, do I leave Australia now that I've now made my home and I've, you know, I've fallen in love with Melbourne? You know, the lifestyle of Melbourne's amazing. And I just sort of spent six months getting a whole life up and running, finding friends, establishing myself, and all of a sudden I was faced with this, this incredibly difficult decision. Do I stay in this company, which literally is is killing me? You know, it's just I couldn't stand it. Um or do I pull the pin on it and risk being not being able to get another visa? Uh, eventually, I had I just had to go. It was, it was too. It was causing me too much stress, and it was in, impacting my life too much. I had to. I had to go. Um, but I was able to get another sponsored visa. Um, fortunately, but it is an incredible stress. Yeah, um, and I, I think a lot of people who are on those business visas. Um, you know, if they change the rules at any time, this is why I was 12 days away from being booted out. The, the rules changed um, and all of a sudden my, my visa became invalid, you know. So it is, it is, it can be um, a difficult situation, an underlying situation, yeah. So I, I think as soon as you possibly can, you either decide that you're, whether you're going to stay and go and if you are going to stay, then you try and get the, the permanent residency, try and find another avenue for getting permanent residency. And there's, there's a number of avenues that you can do there. Mm. Oh, that's good. I appreciate the details on that. And uh, so just to summarize, the, the decision was the employment itself was uh, not ticking all the boxes. It was a stressful role. Yep. Um, perhaps you wouldn't have known until you've really got settled in or yep. things can evolve. Um, but you, you would have had a decision to make there. Yep. Uh, do you still remember that decision to this day or is it a bit of a blend? Like that would have been a big, de big decision to decide that you needed to transition. Yeah, I actually went, um, 
I mean, really what happened is when I landed in Melbourne, like I say that it was a small startup company and there was only four people in the company, but within three weeks, it was basically just me and the owner of the company and we just clashed, just did not go on. And I guess I felt under the pressure to, you know, because I was converting this software to Australia, I was working sort of 16 hour days, weekends, and I was just, I just felt that I was being driven. And even when my parents came out to visit me, we want, you know, they wanted to travel around Australia because it was the first time they'd been to Australia. Um, and I was just getting this immense pressure to, to stay at work and not even see my parents. And really that, that's what triggered it. It's like, well, my parents have flown 12,000 miles to see me. And here I am saying, sorry, I can't see you. That's not right. That's not living. So it, it was, it was after that really that I, I, decided that I just had to pull the pin because it was just impacting my life too much. You wow. know, I didn't come to Australia to, to live in an office working 16-hour days. That's, I appreciate that, that perspective. It's, yeah. it's off, I would say it's fair to say it wasn't an e easy decision. No. And how, how, what was the window of time that you had to contemplate something like that? I guess it probably took me about two months to actually pull the pin because, like I say, it's, I've now established myself in Australia I've, I've put all that effort into it. If I go home, I'll be I'll be seen as a failure. You know, there's a there's a personal cost there. You know, you, <laughs> I guess you don't want to be seen as a failure, sort of thing. Um, but it probably took me about two months to pull the pin. Mm. If I just go one step back, in the sense that you uh, you were in England and you, you immigrated, you arrived, and what did you get a sense of? I guess achievement, or was there a mini celebration saying, "All right, we've got a, a nice new." environment to learn from and you're taking it all in or <laughs> what was the general feeling? Okay. So, well, like I say, it really was a crazy whirlwind before I got here. It was six weeks before Christmas. I had to get the sponsored business visa. I had to shut down a company, sell everything I owned, book my flights, find somewhere to live. It was just crazy. It was an absolute whirlwind. So I literally didn't have time to think. And it was when I actually got into Australia and I landed and I'd got through, I got through the sort of immigration into the sort of arrival area. And um, at that stage, we didn't have, I'm showing my age here, we didn't have mobile phones. So I I didn't know who was going to meet me. I didn't know what they looked like. And I just stood there in this arrivals depart, uh, lounge going, what the hell have I just done? You know, it literally was like deer in the headlights. What the hell have I just done? And I had, <laughs> I had no clue. I literally just stood there frozen because I, I just didn't know what to do. It's, it's, I mean, I basically put that question to you and it's probably... You have to think back, but uh, and I can relate a little bit in the sense that those are so vivid, those yep. experiences. And just again, for those listening and watching that, uh, if you can imagine just hanging up your life somewhere and you're willing, you're, you're willing, you're looking forward to this transition, but there's no preparing you for it. You really no. have left everything behind. You have to start fresh. And here you are a grown adult and you feel like you're about 12 years old. <laughs> that's, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, you do. You do. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's a bit of fun and it's a perhaps unique perspective, but was there some culture shock there? Uh, England versus sort of landing in Australia. You've got a roof over your head at that point. You're going to go get a meal. Well, once I'd, once I had connected with the people, we got me to where I was staying. I actually found it incredible. That was the thing about Melbourne. And here's the thing. I always think that if, I don't really want to be bagging Sydney, but I, th I always feel that if I'd gone to Sydney, I might not have stayed. I love Sydney. It's a great city. I love it. You know, I've got friends there. Um, love visiting it. But when I was in Melbourne, I was always happy to get back to Melbourne. 
it's I guess it's very similar in some respects to England. So once I got over the initial, what the hell have I done? I found the process of getting to know people um, actually relatively easily. And I, I think I think what what that is, is Australians generally are very friendly people. And the second you open your mouth and you've got an accent, that's it, you're, you're in. Everybody wants to know where you're from, why you're here, what you're doing. So you've got an instant conversation starter. And I found that I'd, I'd go to um, like a bar or something like that. And the second I ordered a beer in, in my very BBC accent, people just start talking to me. Um, and that made it a lot easier. That's uh, that's an interesting. One. I I guess I can relate as well. People yeah. can hear my accent; it's not an Australian accent, um, and it's true that there's this awareness, and it's like you're either you fit in from a you know the, the your spoken voice or yeah or not. And even within Australia, there's accents. So let's be yep. clear. Yep. Can you pick uh, an Australian accent from Sydney versus Melbourne? No. Okay. <laughs> but I, I can pick a Queensland one. Okay. Are there differences, or am I just imagining that? There are. Um, actually, there's probably, I think there's probably more difference between, say, Melbourne, Sydney and, say, Adelaide, for example. Adelaide seems to be a little bit more English. And Queenslanders, they, a lot of the time, they've got this particular word, use. <laughs> they don't say you, they say use. <laughs> so if you hear an Australian go, how you is doing? They're from Queensland. That's like a plural version of yeah, you. Yeah, so, so there, are, there are, I guess there's colloquialisms. that That's probably what identifies the different parts of Australia. Mm. Very, very good. So you brought up Queensland. We are based in Queensland, the Gold Coast of Australia. Sorry, the Gold Coast of Queensland, which is in the, uh, on the uh, eastern side of Australia. And um, is it a major city? Not so much. You've got Brisbane, which is the major city. Yeah, but it's sort of the, I would say, tourist mecca. There's lots of um, seasonal travel, people that come here. Mm. Um, and so you've been here for how long now? In Queensland, I've only been here since October last year. Like I literally, it was kind of weird. It was about 2000, it was 2018. I just felt, I had a very weird year and felt that Mel Melbourne had come to an end. I can't put my finger on why or what or how. And I just felt that I needed to be in Queensland. And it took, took sort of another year and a half. But then in the middle of the pandemic, I quit corporate um, to come to Queensland to do coaching, my health coaching full time. And I just felt drawn to Queensland. And the area that I'm actually going to be moving to in the next few weeks is a place called Palm Beach. And it's an absolutely gorgeous area. It's just got this spectacular white sand beach that you can see all the way up to Surface Paradise. People overseas may have heard of Surface Paradise, which is kind of the party center of, of the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast is quite a big region and it's got a number of different sort of I guess you wouldn't really want to call them villages, but it's a sort of string of villages and surface paradise is kind of the party suburb, but Palm Beach is further away and it's on this spectacular white sand beach and you've got this sort of 30 mile view all the way up to the, the, the skyscrapers of surface paradise. It's absolutely gorgeous. So that's where I'm going to be moving to. You know, the second I, I went to Palm Beach um, whilst I was doing a course and the minute I got there, it just felt like home and that's that's I was like yeah I've got to live here oh that's interesting yeah and that's why I've appended everything and here I am <laughs> what I find interesting is that the um, I guess the planning involved of moving interstate it's not so different well I mean changing countries is a big deal but even up to up and move cities 
it's pretty much a similar experience. You've yep. got to get established, find out where the, where everything is. Had you visited the, the Gold Coast before or anywhere? Yeah, look, I've, I've, I've done a lot of travel within Australia. Um, so, yes, I've been up and down to Queensland sort of pretty much every year for 20 years. So I know various aspects of it quite well. Um, but I'd never been to this particular Palm Beach and I, I just fell in love with it. Wonderful. So there's yeah. a spark. And then how quick from the time where you uh, had had seen it to the time where you moved in or settled there? Um, well, actually, actually, here's the thing. If I if I get moved there in the next couple of weeks, it'll be it'll actually be two years pretty much from the first time I, got, I was there because, of course, we were shut down last year with, with the pandemic. We weren't able to travel. Otherwise, it would have been last year. It would have been earlier last year. But of course. Okay. Two years, yeah. Well, that, that's a great way of describing, actually, the, rea the reality of it. But yeah. um, I think what people can take away from is just ha having a good look at, you know, what's your daily routine? You know, are you enjoying your day-to-day and what you're working on, and then are you in the place that you enjoy being in? I think there's a piece there. What do you, how do you feel about uh, living in a place, doing something you enjoy, or l doing what you enjoy, but in a place that's um, neither here nor there? So what I'm trying to find out is, is your environment, do you feel, conducive to happiness? It is now, yeah. Um, and like I say, I've, I've been wanting to, I guess, get out of corporate for a while, and I was the COO of a software company back in July last year when I quit. Um, it's the health coaching that really, really inspires me. And I've been doing that as a kind of side hustle for um, four or five years. Um, never quite been brave enough to make that big transition. Um, and then really, I just I just felt that it was, it was now or never. Um, so it, it has been a lifestyle choice. The whole thing has been a lifestyle choice uh, because I work online, I can work from anywhere. So why would I stay in a place that I no longer enjoy being in? To me, that didn't make sense. So it's like, I can work from anywhere in the world. Let's go and set myself up in an environment that I also love being in as well. You know, I love, I love the coaching. I love the health coaching. Um, let's put myself in an environment that I love in as well. Because, um, you know, when you've, when you've got aspects of your life that you're not happy with, it just kind of ticks away in your brain and it just sort of detracts from your general level of happiness. So I felt that I needed, I needed to be here where I, the environment was just more relaxed, um, a bit more free and easy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got a fairly structured day, I suppose. You know, I'm always, I've always make sure that I look after myself from a health perspective. Um, you know, I meditate a lot. I, do my training every day um, before I get into my work, and then I always have I have hard boundaries when I shut off work, and then I go and do some something else relaxing. Um, and that to me made sense. That's why I really wanted to be somewhere close to the beach because I just I just love walking on the sand, listening to the waves. There's, there's, sometimes the simplest things are the most joyful things, and that's what I wanted in my life. It's wonderful. Yeah, I love that we've covered and got there. I think there's a piece that people are hanging out for, which is, you know, your mission and, and everything that you've done up from this point to really, um, I mean, I feel like you have so much opportunity to yeah. help people. Um, yeah. Can you maybe just take us through the the performance side of things where you, you identified a path that you were going to pursue? It was related to health and wellness and fitness. And then you took that and <laughs> excelled. Uh, but then not only that, you've, um, it wasn't just a short lived or a moment in time, you've continued and it's still with you and you're, 
reflecting that into this um, coaching um, scope, which essentially is an online, so you could reach many, many people. Yep. Could you take us through through that, what exactly you did? All right. Well, if, if we go back to, we probably need to go back to actually sort of when I was when I was 40. The decision I made there was that if I didn't have my health, I had nothing. Um, and I was on a lot of podcasts last year, mainly in a business context. But one of the things I was always saying to people is good health is good business. If you don't look after yourself, you can't run your business well. And it's the same thing if you're a carer for other people, if you've got your children and stuff like that. No matter what your job is or what your lifestyle is, if you don't look after yourself first, you can't look after those who depend on you. So good health is essential. And that was a decision I really made. If I don't have my health, I have nothing. Okay. Um, your health essentially is what you have left should you be in a horrible situation when you lose everything else. Um, and that's what set me, I guess that was the internal motivation that kept me going. And then when I went through the depression, really, that was all about taking responsibility. In fact, the, my whole journey really has been about taking responsibility for where I am. I was where I was, which was classified as a beast, because of the lifestyle choices I'd been making up to that point. And I realized that because I'd, I had made those choices, I could unmake those choices and make new choices that were more conducive to my new mission of health. Okay. Um, and really, that's what's guided me for the whole journey. And like I say, when I went through depression, I didn't I wanted to do it myself. I didn't want to go the medicated route. I knew that was a recipe for disaster. Um, so I doubled down on my health and fitness, my training. Like I say, got even fitter and got into the bodybuilding. But there was another episode when I was 43. My Literally, physically, my body fell apart. I had double shoulder surgery, torn tendons in every limb, uh, torn cartilage in every joint. You know, I was, I was a physical physical wreck. I literally, I literally couldn't... I literally couldn't pick up this pen because I couldn't grip. It was that bad. And the doctors told me to stop all form of activity. Um, and it was, this, it was at this point my trainer was very instrumental in, I guess, my next phase because he told me that if if we could get my, my body right, he would make me world champion. Now, no, this 28-year-old guy telling his 43-year-old, broken down 43-year-old that he's going to make her world champion in the toughest sport in the world. It was so ludicrous that... Uh, the crazy in me just went, okay, let's do it. Um, so I literally had to spend a whole year rebuilding my body from the ground up. I had to learn how to stand on my feet, place the pressure points on my toes, literally rebuilt my body from the ground up. Um, but I guess all of that has been in alignment with my mission of, you know, if I don't have my health, I have nothing. So everything has driven me is to make sure that I'm in optimal health at all times. There's a lot in there, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there's some specific things just to help people relate to uh, the challenge that was in front of you, and you would have you would have had some motivation and some factors to say like now's the time I'm going to take steps to improve this. So when you say um, it was it was obesity or there was a stage of you would consider yourself or somebody classified you as in that category. What, how many kilograms or how many pounds would that be just to give a feel? Okay, so it's, I was 78 kilograms, which is about 150 pounds, no, probably about 155 pounds or so, something like that. Yeah. Um, but for my height, uh, it represented, what was I? I think I was, I was borderline in the, the for my height and 
build, I was borderline in the, like the morbidly obese group. Um, and, you know, you, the, the, the health outcomes as you get older for people who are sort of significantly overweight are not good. Um, and I knew this. And it really, it really shocked me to my core because I've always been active my whole life. I've always been sporty. So in my head, I thought of myself as the fit chick. I was the fit chick. So this whole thing of you're obese, it just didn't work for me. I, I couldn't, I could not process that. It's like, well, I can't, I can't be obese. I ha I, I'm the fit chick. I have to be the fit chick. Um, because I knew that the health outcomes was so poor if I stayed here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and another uh, one, one thing that really did, we've have sort of, we touched on this before we were recording, but one of the health outcomes for women, particularly in their, in their 40s, is osteoporosis. Um, and even if for people who are obese, osteoporosis can be a huge problem. And that runs down the female line in my family, and I literally saw my grandmother crumble away. And I was determined that that wasn't going to happen to me. So again, this is where picking up the weights has been instrumental in improving my health um, because my bone density has actually increased. So my bone density, even though I'm 51, is that of like a 35-year-old because I, because I do this resistance training. Mm. Um, okay, excellent. I just wanted to ask the question about uh, the, that moment where you would have realized that you wanted a new way forward and... Was it a question, to get to that point, was it a question of priorities uh, in life such that um, you were the fit chick, and, but then life gets in the way, you've got lots of other things going on, and then the, the, the tipping point just kind of get, gets you in the, leads well, you down this imbalance? Well, there was a number of factors. I mean, I, I think the key factor was actually the fact that I, I was 40 and I'd just come out of a 10-year relationship. Um, I wasn't happy in, in myself, and... Literally, the thought went through my head. It's like, well, I'm 40 fat and frumpy. Who the hell is going to love me? I, I had this fear that I was going to die alone. And now that might sound a little bit dramatic, but those were literally the thoughts going through my head. It's like, nobody's going to love this fat, frumpy 40-year-old. I, I can't be that person. It, so it was, it was about my identity. I literally did not know who I was at that point. You mentioned the the influence of a coach. Uh, was were they aware? Are they aware of psych psychological aspects like that? What what like the core of the motivation? Did they tap into that early on, or do you have to bring that? Well, to the no, coach I say, I I didn't at that stage when I lost all the weight. I didn't have a trainer. I did that myself. Wow, that was that was really, um, gosh, I was brutal on myself actually. And I, I you know, and I tell my story and what I did, you know, I literally hit the gym and I was doing three hours training a day and I was beating myself up because I wasn't doing five hours training a day because I'd done a, like a couple of years earlier, I did a 30 day trek in Bhutan in the Himalayas and I was training five hours a day. So here I was doing three hours of brutal training a day, beating myself up because I wasn't doing five hours of training. So I don't recommend anybody do that. Um, but two years later, it was when I went through the depression. That's when I hired the personal trainer because when you're going through depression, you're kind of in this hole and all you can see is the hole. And I needed, I knew I needed help. And when you're in that hole, reaching out for help is, is one of the hardest things in the world. Um, but that's when I hired a personal trainer and literally just starting working with a personal trainer one hour a day just gave me that 
space just to decompress. Um, yeah, so mm. it was, it was, and I guess he at the point didn't know I I was going through depression. It's kind of weird, actually. He didn't know till probably about nine months later that I was actually going through depression at the time, because when I was in the space in the gym, it, it became my happy space. So I, I, I literally would walk through the gym doors, and I could feel my, I could feel the weight dropping off me, and I would be my usual happy self. So my trainer had no clue to start with. Mm -hmm. It was only nine months later when I, I was actually in a, um, in a magazine. I won a magazine competition for a transformation competition. It was only then that I told him that I'd applied for the competition <laughs> and he was going to be filmed for the story. Amazing. Yeah. I guess there's levels of people that you <laughs> you share things with and, and it's like you're, you're living it. You're in that moment. So to look back, you can see perhaps I could have brought someone in earlier or to recognize yeah. those things. So I think there's a couple points I didn't want to miss here. Um, one, of it, one of them is the step to to just get going and you say, okay, uh, 40 years old, I want to get going and, and get fit. Uh, is it a step by step where you say, look, I'm just going to try to get uh, five kilograms off or it's a strength goal or is it more uh, of a, a bigger one where you say, look, it's going to be 30 kilos that have got to come off and I'm just going to do as hard as I can? Well, the, the key thing about my transformation, it was never about the weight loss. Never about the weight loss. I never set a goal to lose 25 kilos ever. It was about reestablishing my identity and finding who I was. Um, and I say that I lost the weight without dieting because what I did is I start, I changed my lifestyle. It was a lifestyle change. And this is, this is one very critical element. If you want to lose a, a big amount of weight and keep it off, you have to do it slowly and you have to change your lifestyle, but in bite-sized chunks. Don't change. If you change everything all in one go, eventually willpower will keep you going for a while, but then it'll, it'll tail off and you'll go back to where you were. So if you've got a big change to make, the key is breaking it down into small bite-sized chunks and doing one thing at a time. So for example, one thing I did was I started paying attention to what I was eating. So I was eating mindfully and I'd really check in with myself. You know, if I'm eating that, do I really need to eat that? You know, why am I eating that? You know, is it, am I bored? Am I stressed? Am I emotional? Or am I actually hungry? Oh, what's hungry? Okay, well, let's, let's find out what hungry is. Let me give myself a rating out of 10. 10 being I could eat the table, one being no, I'm stuffed. So I give myself a rating out of 10 on my, whether I was hungry. And if I was seven or eight, it's like, yeah, that's, that's hungry. That's hungry enough to eat. I'll eat. So I became very deliberate about eating. So I kind of I kind of took the emotion out of it. And actually that really paid dividends when I got into the bodybuilding because I developed what's known as athlete thinking, where food becomes fuel for the job you're doing. So I'd already developed that before I got into the bodybuilding. So the bodybuilding was incredibly easy from that aspect. But like I say, what I did is like I'd rate my hunger out of 10. If I was a seven or eight, I'd eat. And then I'd also identify when I was full. A lot of people don't know this because they don't tune into the sensations their body's giving you. And your body is always telling you stuff. It's always talking to you. If you've got a grumbly stomach, it's, it's your body telling you something. So pay attention to it. Um, what else did I do? So I started paying attention to the physical sensations of food. So if I ate, um, if I ate like a burger and chips, how did I feel? If I felt tired or sleepy or bloated or 
lethargic. And I go, well, well, that probably didn't work. So I'll steer away from that. So stuff that made me feel not so good, I just moved away from. I never cut anything out. Even alcohol, I didn't cut it out, but I cut down. So what I did is I started gradually moving much more towards real, whole, fresh, home-cooked foods, less takeaway foods, less packaged foods, less processed foods. And it was just a natural progression. You know, I found that I felt lighter or more energetic when I ate more vegetables. Okay, I'll eat more vegetables then because I feel light and energetic. And that was the feeling that I wanted. And that's really how I gradually steered myself to 25 kilos of weight loss in addition to the brutal training I was doing. But um, what else was I going to say? Oh, it's gone. Never mind. That's right. <laughs> it's gone. Well, you definitely answered the question, yeah. which is capturing the uh, heading in that direction and yeah. specific things. And was there an aspect of um, perhaps it wasn't about weight loss, but is, is there a sense of tracking? Like, were you using? No, I didn't track anything. Okay. What are your thoughts on like current day, like Fitbits and, uh, you know, these little devices that can. There's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for them. Now, if you're an elite athlete and your sport depends on body fat levels, weight levels, absolutely track everything you eat. I mean, certainly when I'm um, cutting for my competitions, yes, I need to know every single morsel that I eat. So I track it for the, for the average person. It's really not particularly necessary because what it, all that trains you to do is it trains you to focus on a number on, an, on a bit of equipment. Now, here's the thing. Most of these pieces of equipment can be anywhere between sort of 20 to 50% wrong. So your Fitbit could be sort of 20% wrong. Your gym equipment could be 20% wrong. Now, if, they're, if you're, your Fitbit's um, underestimating the, the food you're eating by 20% and your, your treadmill's overestimating the calories you're burning by 20%, You've actually got a you know a forty percent deficit in where you think you are, so you could still be overeating a lot of food, but your 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 equipment is telling you no 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 I was bang on, and this is what uh, you know sometimes I find when I'm coaching people like a, they swear blind they're doing everything right and they probably are, but they're focusing on numbers on equipment that's just inherently inaccurate. Whereas like I say because I learned to tune into my physical sensations of my body and I developed habits, you know, everything became a habit. Um, that's how I always steer myself and, um, you know, I just eat intuitively really because I know, I know, I now know I've learned what foods work for me, what foods make me feel energetic, which ones don't. Um, and then I pretty much eat sort of, I guess, 80-20. 80% of the time, it's all fresh, whole, real, minim minimally processed foods. But look, I'll go out and have a burger and chips. It doesn't really bother me. And I don't beat myself up over it because I don't put black and white context around things. Like a burger and chips is not bad. You have to place something in the context of your current goals. So when I'm cutting for competition, a burger and chips, you might think is bad, but you know, when you get down to sub 10% body fat, you actually need a massive bump of calories every now and then. And you, you know, so I'll get to the point where I'll probably be having burger and chips twice a, twice a week and still being at 10% body fat. But there's, there's a whole physiological reason behind it. It's a very, very skilled thing to do, you know, but, uh, you know, unless I'm actually cutting, uh, most people wouldn't need to track. Mm -hmm. I think it, it gives people an artificial sense of, um, progress. But like I say, it could be completely leading them in the wrong direction. Okay. 
All right. Well, we're, we're definitely getting to the point where you get into bodybuilding and then that's, I mean, a lot of people are very passionate about that and they've achieved great results massively. You know, the transformations beyond belief, really, like you can hardly imagine body fat percentage, um, the, the cutting, the, just the visual that you get yeah. from someone that's shredded like that. Um, was that, how did you feel to realize that I am a bodybuilder competing at this level? How does that feel? Well, like I say, it was it was total it was a total accident. I, what what sparked it was for my forty second birthday. I did I did a photo shoot to reward myself for not quitting and and getting myself through the depression. So I, it was a reward. And the photographer asked me if I was doing a show. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Um, and she said the bodybuilding show. So I went along to this bodybuilding show, and then I just completely freaked out because all there was all these ginormous muscly chocolate covered women with fake hair, fake nails, fake eyelashes, fake boobs, fake tan. It was just the most bizarre spectacle I'd ever seen in my whole life, you know, with, in sparkly bikinis and stripper heels. <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing you'd ever saw. In fact, it was so, it freaked me out so much. I broke out in a rash all over my body and my trainer thought I had some kind of disease. <laughs> so it was just, you know, you, but something must, something stuck in my head and I just sort of said, look, could I do this? And he said, yes, you can. Um, but, you know, getting down to that level of body fat, um, it's not sustainable, but it feels great. I love, I love it when I'm at that level of body fat. You know, you just feel so strong and so empowered. You know, if the people who make it onto stage, it doesn't matter whether they place, they don't place, it doesn't matter. If you make it onto stage in a, at a level of body fat or a shape or condition that you've never been in your whole life, that's an achievement in itself. Absolutely, that's an achievement. Yeah. Uh, what I'm thinking of is some parallels where um, people that are pursuing something to the intensity and to get that result, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a top top percentage that are extreme, and then there's sort of, but within the club, let's say, of bodybuilding and being on stage, is there an appreciation, uh, camaraderie, saying, look, we've all just, here's the struggle, here's the payoff, we all look good, uh, or is it quite competitive in, in that um, people are nitpicking and saying, you know, like, striving to be the best, and then they're not supporting you? I've, I've found it overwhelmingly positive. Yes, of course, you are going to have that element of people who do, you know, if they don't win, that's, it's the end of the world. Um, and it can become all-consuming. I, I suppose that's the same in any sport. If you're going to get to an elite level at any sport, you have to be super focused. The reason I've been able, to, I think, to achieve so much and stay in it so long and also stay sane is the fact that I've figured out a way of making um, the whole process and the discipline required fit into my lifestyle rather than changing my lifestyle to do the bodybuilding. Um, and it's, it's the people who don't, can't make that transition who kind of get chewed up and spat out. Um, and yes, there are, you know, I'm not going to glamorize it. Yes, there are people who come out of it on the other end with eating disorders. Um, there are people who are just in it for the trophy and, you know, for the, the likes on Instagram. Those are the people who don't last. The people who last are the people who make it a lifestyle and, and also give back. I mean, I'm, I, I do the coaching, I, I put people on stage, I do the posing coaching, I, I run webinars. Um, I'm actually in the process of working with another competitor at the moment, setting up an academy of competing where we can run webinars to help up and coming um, 
competitors. So we're giving back to the community, and it is a community. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That and just to put this on the map for people, was this within Australia or was this in an international location? Um, it's in Australia at the moment. Literally, we've only been doing this three weeks. Okay. Yeah, but we we do plan on going global. Okay, but the competition aspect. Uh... Oh, the competitions, yes, is is global. It's worldwide. There's a lot of organisations worldwide. Um, I'm professional in four of them. Um, so really, for the last probably for about the last five years, I've done most of my competing overseas, particularly in the US. It's huge in the US. I have competed in the US, um, in the UK and Canada as well. Okay. Yeah. And with your story and it being here in Australia, you're spending your time here as well. Do you find that people have an understanding or an appreciation for your effort and achievements? Or is it a bit of education saying, yeah, you may not be aware of bodybuilding, but it is. Look, there's still, an there's still an element of stigma attached to it. And I, there's definitely cultural difference, differences between, I guess, you know, the States and, and Australia. So, you know, I, when I'm in bodybuilding shape, you know, I'm sub sub 10% body fat, um, I'll go into a gym and you find that people sort of gravitate away from you. Who's that scary, muscly woman woman in the gym? You know, they, they disappear away from you kind of thing. In the States, however, in that condition, I get people coming up to me all the time going, yay, good for you. You know, particularly the guys, they're, they're like much respect. So in the States, they definitely respect the effort required. But in Australia, it's it's much less of a uh, particularly in the female, to be more muscular, it's it's much less accepted still. Mm -hmm. um, and so, just hearing that you've chosen a great place to live, you got Palm Beach, uh, is and perhaps that's a missing piece where you're putting in on the effort and you're spending your life here, but you may not get the uh, maybe it's the immediate recognition or maybe a bit of celebrity that could come being doing it in the U.S. Um, is that a missing piece, or you're that's fine? That balance works for you. It's fine. Yeah. Um, Within, within bodybuilding, there's, there's, there's kind of two streams to bodybuilding. There's, there's a drug-tested route and then there's the, the route that's not drug-tested. I'm in the drug-tested route and the route is called natural and there's no money in that. So despite all my world titles, I've only ever won a total of about $3,000. You, you don't do it for the money. You do it for the love of the sport. Um, and like I say, it's, it's given me... It's given me a huge sense of achievement. Um, it's really, I guess, given me a sense of who I am. You just feel much more sort of stronger and more centered and grounded within yourself. You become much more certain of who you are as a person. And here's the thing. The discipline that's been required in the bodybuilding world has literally directly translated into my, translated back into my corporate career. You know, and it, it matches, you know, I was just in IT, just been, being a business analyst or a developer, a programmer kind of thing. And then as I've risen in the bodybuilding world, I've risen up the executive, up to executive level in the IT world. And it literally mirrors my bodybuilding progress. So the discipline in my sport has translated into the business. And I, I attribute it to the fact that because, again, because of the health aspect of it, because I'm so, um, I guess my lifestyle and my nutrition is so always on point, I have, I guess, the energy and the processes and the disciplines and structures in place to allow me to perform at a much higher level in the in the business world as well. Definitely. I think that is, there'd be many motivational books that would say, you know, one area translates to another area. Yeah, and completely. And you're experiencing that. Yeah. Um, 
you mentioned the word discipline, and I think that's something that's going to be a common thread through all walks of life. So yeah. people are working towards something. You know, nothing comes for free. No. Hard work. <laughs> you know, we, we try, try to avoid the cliches, but at the same time, there's a common thread. And um, do you think you were equipped with everything that you had from an early age, or was it just out of this born out of necessity, where you're like sink or swim? Something needs to change. I need to arm myself quickly with some. <laughs> well, I, I guess I guess a lot of my life has probably kind of been a happy accident. I mean, <laughs> I sometimes say to people, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. You know, coming to Australia was was a spur of the moment thing. Moving to the Gold Coast or you know Queensland again, it's not yeah, it was kind of spur of the moment thing. Um, getting into the bodybuilding spur of the moment thing. So so none of it's really been by design. Um, getting yeah you know, although being the world champion, I was only supposed to win one, but 21 times later, I'm still going at 51. So like I say, um, it has required discipline, but I don't think I've designed anything yet. Okay. <laughs> but well, I've just, I've just followed, I've followed my heart on a lot of things. And I've followed my instinct. A lot of people don't trust their, their instinct enough. And I think the things I've been most successful in are when I've, I've literally followed my heart or followed my instinct. You know, and I've had plenty of people say, "Oh, you're crazy!" Particularly when I came to Australia, "You're crazy! What are you, nothing are you doing?" And yes, you get you go through a lot of doubt, but if you can conquer that aspect, you come through not only as a more powerful person, but you'll you'll amaze yourself with what you can achieve. Like I say, I never thought I'd be at executive level in in IT. All of a sudden, I'm running a software company. Who knew? You know. <laughs> That's, well, this is a really important. Uh, perspective that we can capture today because in a year's time or in a couple of years we can see how things go and and I think it's it's interesting to see for people that even you're you've achieved a lot and beyond what what you most people can imagine and that but it's a question of where from here and so do you feel like is it in is it in relaxation mode now where you say look I've put in some hard yards now I just want to shift and perhaps enjoy life in a different way or is there something still on your radar saying, look, I'm, I'm, I want to pursue these three things and, and there's a timeline to Where it. Where I am now is, you know, I've, I've reflected on, I guess, sort of age 40 to 50, that was definitely a decade of achievement. You know, you know, just went right to the top um, in 10 years. Now it's about giving back. Um, you know, I've, I've achieved some amazing things, kind of kind of almost by happy accident, but along the way, I've learned exactly what, you know, the steps and the processes and the skills and tools that have got me here. And now I see so many people struggling with their health, um, struggling with, you know, losing weight or their fitness and stuff like that. And to me, there's some very, very simple things that people are missing. And those, those skills are not being taught. You know, people get sort of sucked in by these flashy habits for losing seven kilos in seven days kind of thing. And to me, that's completely missing the point. And really, they need to focus on the basics. So that's where I'm at now is, is it's about giving back and helping people. And, and I, just, I just feel it's just in me. I can't help myself. If somebody asks me about diet and nutrition, I'll probably talk their ears off for about three hours. Um, I can't help myself, you know, and because I kind of can't help myself but talk about it. It's like, well, 
let let me let me just talk about it. Mm. Let's make it what I do. So the role of coach is almost like infinite. Like in a sense, you, yeah, you could reach. Uh, you would be happy to reach as many people as possible, Absolutely. as long as practical do so. And yeah, um, and I think again, if there's a so a takeaway for some of the listeners and viewers is that uh, just the, the role of a coach in general. So you can consider in any area of expertise, once you get to this point where you've got some knowledge and perhaps it's less about working the, the eight hour day uh, and using that knowledge to uh, reach more people. Yep. Um, so it could just be through channels like this uh, yeah. and so on. Um, we touched on an interesting point around the stages of, of life and things that you're going through, challenges and so on. You mentioned uh, the word depression, and I just wanted to come back and place that on the timeline of things. So it was, um, you know, getting settled into Australia, then the career path, but then a pivot, and then off into the the personal journey. But it sounds like there was a that the, the fitness program and the transformation was first, and then there was a depression that followed. Is that right? Yeah. Is that something that any links with that, or was it just happened to be a one-off incident that was unrelated? Sorry, I'm not, I'm it's just sure. the the depression you mentioned. Is, okay. it, is it something that just came on as a result of the fitness and the intense training, in your opinion? No, there was. It, there could have been an element of that, but there was this very weird space of eight after after I'd done the mountain climb. Uh, so I was 41 when I did the mountain climb, and then just before Christmas that same year, and for the following six weeks some just spectacularly odd things happened. One of which was a weird event where I basically had separated from my entire social circle. I lost my entire social circle, uh, disconnected completely in one in one go. Um, I had a house flood, I had a tax audit, I had a lump under my armpit. There was just stuff that happened in this six week period. And then when I went to the doctor about the lump under my armpit, I just broke down because I was just under this extraordinary amount of pressure from these, you know, these events just coming one after the other, after the other, after the other. Um, and it just piled on top of me and I just broke down. So really that's where that came from. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's um, it's one of those topics that's out there and I, I'm, whether it's entrepreneurs or people that are pursuing goals, sometimes you just you maybe have the people have the blinders on a little bit. They don't necessarily look out for things or it could be, um, a lifestyle decision saying, look, I'm perhaps not eating well, but I'm trying to get this thing done over here. So, uh, or it could be a mental uh, balance where it's not a hundred percent wellness in terms of mental balance and, and things and depression can kick in. And it's even looking out for those signs and I'm not necessarily an expert, but I do look back and think, I wonder if there's periods where I would qualify as someone that has experienced that. So, um, just on that topic of people can track their own journeys and how they're feeling, but I think it is good to have a good sense of self yeah, um, and internal compass. Yeah, but here's, what's, here's the odd thing. When you're going through something like that, like, yeah, I, I'm, an, I'm a life coach. I'm an NLP coach. I've got all the mental tools and skills, but I wasn't able to, I guess, identify, you know, what I was going through myself. It took an external factor to do that. Um because like when you're in that that hole, all you can see is the hole. And like I say, I had all the, in theory, I had all of the mental training to be able to deal with it and pull myself out of it, which I subsequently did once I knew what it was. But in the moment when I was going through it for the, sort of the couple of months that I was going through it, um, 
you, you're absolutely right. You, you can't see that. You can't see that. Mm. I appreciate you showing that. I think that's that'll be interesting yeah. to see if other people have that experience. But but this is, I mean, I was actually on a, a webinar uh, last Sunday with um, uh, my bodybuilding community because we had a an incident in the community and we just wanted to do a reach out uh, with some very, very um, well-known coaches and stuff about mental health and, and just reaching out. You know, when people are going through struggles, and I guess the whole of the last year has been, there's been plenty of struggles that people are going through, it can be difficult to spot that you're in trouble um, and you really need people around you to support you. And that's where your support network really is very, very critical. And like I say, when I was going through the depres depression, I didn't have that support network because that was exactly the instant I've, I, I, I saw that my entire social circle did not support me. Mm -hmm. So I separated myself from them and then... That was one of, the, I guess, the grieving process was one of the things that, you know, contributed to the depression as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating to see how, I mean, struggle comes in lots of different forms. Yeah. Uh, it can be in that space or it can just be lots of things. But then it's sort of the, the payoff at the end coming through it. Um, you know the, the extremes of what life can be like. And yeah. I think perhaps that's something for everyone out there that... If you can start something or if you want to pursue something, um, yeah, there's. it's not going to be a smooth ride always. No, it's not. But, but really, I guess the key for me when I was going through that was I found something positive in my life and I focused with, I had laser focus on that positive thing. And that that was, I mean, ironically, the fitness was part of what got me into the, into the mess in the first place because I neglected all other aspects of my life, which fell apart. Um, but having that positive thing to focus on, like I say, with, with the personal trainer and just having that space to decompress, um, that's what helped give me, I guess, the opportunity to, to look around and look for solutions. Mm. I like that there's other people that have contributed to things and that's kind of the neat effect of having a network and so on. Does this personal trainer, is he aware of your, uh, I mean, if he's aware of your progression, your journey, but does he know the role that he played? Yes. Yeah, wonderful. Yep. And and what's your relationship to this day? Is it still like it, it's it's excellent. Like like I say, we, we became like I say, we became really good friends. Wonderful. Um, he was absolutely my rock. Is he still based in uh, Melbourne? He's still based in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh. You know, and I've I've told him I said, look, I couldn't have done this with. He knows that I couldn't have done any of this without him. Mm. It's, it's nice to be able to celebrate yeah. the achievements, and it's also good to share that yeah. with those that have uh, yeah. played an important part. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the personal, like the transformational health coach aspect of you being able to help people, I wonder about that in, on the positive sense, like you said, people are perhaps, you know, struggled in the last year and perhaps still struggling. Um, I, w I wonder if there's a wave of positivity, though, in the sense that they have more awareness. So they have, everyone's woken up uh, and they're looking around or looking in the mirror and thinking, okay, the world has changed. It's time for me to change along with it and so on. Are you seeing a wave of positivity or is it is just a bit of still, is everyone still in shock in terms of what to do next? Well, I guess I'm seeing a couple of things. I mean, one of the podcasts I was on last year, they had this lovely phrase called optimism. It's a combination of hope and optimism, which I thought was brilliant um, because I, I saw last year overwhelmingly as positive. The world had shut down and what I felt was it, it gave me certainly the opportunity to to really sort of look around at what everything was going on go 
what's working, what's not working, what can I improve? Um, and that's when I decided to change everything. It's like, yeah, the corporate's just not working for me anymore. Um, I really feel so called to be doing my coaching full time that I just, I can't deny it any longer. So for me, it was overwhelmingly positive because I guess with everything shut down and uh, certainly in Melbourne, we were locked up for, <laughs> locked up for six months, you know, uh, it gave you that space to start reflecting on things. And I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people have used, used this as a bit of an opportunity to review where they're at and start you know, figuring out if things really are working. And now that things have much more opened up, certainly here in Australia, I mean, I know the rest of the world's still going through some terrible times, but here in Australia, we're much more open. I think people have really started figuring out the things that um, made were important to them. And a lot of people have been commenting the fact that they felt more connected. They made more connections last year, and that's been important. Um, so I think there's been a lot of positive, positive stuff that's actually come out of last year. A number of people I follow, they've all jumped on last year really as a huge opportunity, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to change your life, but it takes a lot of courage. It does take courage. And that's, you know, you're always going to have doubts. You're always going to have people telling you you're crazy. And it, it's often those closest to you because and they're doing it out of love. You know, you you decide that you're going to change your whole life and everyone goes, oh, you're crazy. What are you doing that for? They're doing it out of love, but really they're also doing it out of fear because if you make a change, it kind of starts throwing up their own inadequacies. So there's a combination that they kind of want you to succeed, but they kind of don't as well. I really want to reinforce that point. Just perhaps it is different for everyone, but in my every. Everything I've tried that seems to be a little bit outside the box, the first instinct is, well, we'll just get some early feedback on this. And it never fails. Uh, the people closest to you will give you, will say, will talk, try to talk you out of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, for those that don't know to look out for it, go in with that knowledge because if not, you might just take that knowledge, get yeah. that advice, yeah. and you're not, you'll miss an opportunity, most likely. Absolutely. Um you know, and unfortunately, you know, this is a bit morbid, but it is the number one regret of people on their deathbed that they didn't go for it more. And they allowed people to talk themselves out of stuff, mm. you know. Um, but it, it does. It takes a lot of courage. You've got to I've, – I've always had an immense sense of self-belief. And I think that's kind of what's allowed me just to, I guess, bludgeon my way through. So when people do go, you're completely crazy, I go, oh, well, whatever, I'm just going to do it. You know, <laughs> I kind of go, no, well, la, 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 didn't hear you. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, really good stuff. I think we're, we've touched on a lot of areas that can be helpful just for people to relate to. Um, also, it, it it's amazing to see what you've achieved, but then also perhaps like the foundation of it all is that, you know, here you are, you're enjoying your life. You're picking and choosing, I feel, of, you know, how to how to enjoy the days. And uh, do you get into the ocean? Are you a surf, uh, are you into the swimming no, and surfing? Here's the thing. Um I'm an excellent, I'm an ex excellent swimmer, but I really don't like the sea. <laughs> I'm choosing to go and live by the beach, but I really don't like, like, I mean, this is, yeah, I really don't like being in the sea. I like being by the sea. I like the sound of the sea. It's incredibly, to me, it's incredibly uh, grounding and calming. Just so I like being on the beach, hearing the sea, but I don't, don't like being in the sea. It's quite, it's 
I know. <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, probably just to keep things fresh, a couple of quick questions. So uh, just a quick one. So early riser, is it, is it pay to wake up early and get the day started? Yes, I've always been, I've always been an early bird. Um, there's a, yeah, there's something very special about, I, I tend to, I don't have alarm clocks. I don't have watches. I haven't had for longer than I can remember. I tend to wake up when the sun comes up. So in the winter, well, particularly sort of in England, you know, I might not get out of bed till nine o'clock in the morning kind of thing. But um, over here in Australia, the, you know, when the sun's up at about four o'clock in the morning, it's there's a, there's a special magic about that early first hour of the day. So, yes, I, I love being out and about early before the world wake up. You can literally just sort of sit there and there's a, there's a special energy about the world and it's kind of it's kind of this sort of pregnant pause. It knows that the world's about to wake up and it hasn't quite got there. So it's it's literally the calm before the storm. And then so, something about seven o'clock happens and the world goes crazy. Everybody's up and are going to work and stuff like that. But that sort of hour between about five and six, there's just a magic about it, which which I love. That's that's very special to share that. And I'll just reinforce that I think that's probably unusual for most of the people that aren't used to the maybe where we are. In, on the equator, the line, and so on, but it's uh, it also gets hot, <laughs> the heat yes. in the full summer. So there's not a lot of choice. Um, are you up and running on the beach? You go for a walk or a stroll, or uh, that's generally a lifestyle thing that happens on the Gold Coast. People I just up and I just exercise. Just love strolling along the beach. I love the feel of sand on my on my feet, the, like and just hearing the waves. It's like I say, it really it's it's part of my morning routine. A lot of people who are sort of very successful, I suppose, um, and really do practice a level of self-care. They always have, they have a kind of morning routine that sets them up for the day in a, in a much more sort of positive, healthy way. Mine is usually meditating. Um, going for a walk along the beach is definitely up there. Um, I love cycling. I actually love cycling to, to my gym, you know, about five or six o'clock in the morning as well because of this special energy. So it doesn't matter if I'm walking on the beach or cycling or something like that. It's that being outside because, as you alluded to, the days get fiercely hot, but at that particular time as well, the temperatures, it's just right. And That's often right. there's no wind and it, it's it's just a beautiful time of the day. It's mm. a good descriptive way to describe it because a lot of people would, again, they tune into Instagram, they see a lot of lifestyle shots, um, but they don't necessarily know when that was taken. So a lot of yep. those could be very early mornings and it's the yep. calm. Um, it, li it literally just, it's just calm, like I say. Um, and the temperature is usually just right. And then on the flip side, uh, what, so to get up that early, what time do you go to bed normally? Usually I'm in bed by about nine. Okay. Again, because uh, I've kind of aligned with the sun. Um, so the piece for me there is the sleep aspect and how how critical is sleep to the uh, oh, it's huge. The, the balance, the recovery, the everything. weight loss, everything? Yeah. Uh, is there a, a blanket rule just saying get enough sleep or is there a, a magic number to shoot for? Really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner. Um, as, you know, I'm a nutritional healer, Ayurvedic practitioner as well. And in Ayurveda, the, the key times to be asleep are between 10 and 6. So as long as you get to bed and you're actually asleep by 10, and you kind of wake up at six, those are the ideal times. And really within your sleep cycle, you have kind of two sleep cycles, um, one of which is kind of physical repair, the other is the mental repair. 
And you, you really do need both to be able to function at your best. Mm. That's interesting. I've written that down just so I can track our own schedules here and see. Yeah. Um, again, in, in the technology world, you get all kind of this um, whatever it takes hustle mentality where you just burn the candle at both ends. Yeah. And, and look, you know, I've, I mean, I've, I've been in IT. So, in th you know, in theory, I, I could be one of those sort of technology heads, but I'm not. I, I have a hard rule that um, essentially the technology is off by eight o'clock. Um, Hey, uh, and just to paint the picture for everyone uh, about the the hours, if given that this is Queensland uh, on the Gold Coast, perhaps bigger cities are they stretch those limits, but it generally gets quite quiet. Like you'd be hard pressed to find any activity going on, sort of around the, in those evening hours. Whereas Melbourne based, you got the probably some late night options. Yeah, M Melbourne's twenty four seven, three six five, pretty much. So yeah, so Queensland can be good for lifestyle. Uh, and, uh, well, well, actually, you talk about culture shock from coming from England to Australia. I think I actually had more culture shock when I moved up to Queensland because at that time Melbourne was in full lockdown. Like we were not allowed more than five kilometres from our house. And I'd been there for six months. So literally for six months, I hadn't been going out of my house for more than half an hour a day with my mask and stuff. And then I get to Queensland and I get let out of the, the hotel quarantine. But you kind of get booted onto the street, see you leave. And all of a sudden, there's people just walking around with their masks and there's people in, sitting in coffee shops, which are open because <laughs> they weren't in Melbourne. Um, and it, I actually had massive culture shock when I got out of the hotel quarantine because, of course, all of, sort of the, the bars and the cafes and restaurants have been shut in Melbourne for such a long time. And they come to Queensland, everything's open. People are just wandering around being normal. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is very odd. It, was, it really was like going to a foreign country. Amazing. Even though I was in the same country, it was kind of, it was very strange. I think, I think everyone here appreciates the, the liberties that we have and still have. Yeah. So, but we know that uh, everyone else and, and it can arise at any time. So we'll just. Yeah, look, I mean, um, where I'm at, currently living at the moment in Brisbane, we've just had a, a three-day a three day mini lockdown. You know, it can pop up at any time, you know, but it's it's how you deal with it. Wonderful. Um, there's just one final point I just wanted to see if we can capture on the, the sense of worldwide trends and things. I mean, I'm sure obesity is on the rise. In general, people's diets are terrible. Um, fast food isn't helping. There's lots of different influences and I don't need to spell it out for everyone here, but um, let's say the trend is worsening in terms of the factors. You've got uh, scope to be able to help people. Do you find that uh, an, a daunting task to be countering those forces? Um, no, because I don't. I don't look at. I, do, I don't look at the overall big picture. If I was to go, go, oh my god, there's 600 million people in the world who are classified as obese. I'm. I'm not going to make a dent. You would give up before you even started. So I focus on, I focus on doing doing the best I can. You know, as as much as I can. That's so I yeah. Anytime I'm faced with like a what could be a daunting task, I break it down into bite sized chunks, and I focus on. I, this is another thing I'm always telling people to do: focus on what you, um, focus on what you can control, and don't stress about the rest. I can't control the global obesity pandemic. However, I can control and help the clients that I'm working with. So I focus on that. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, the, the vehicles like this where we're able to essentially get FaceTime with you and people can connect and see and just get a description of um, uh, 
your way of life. I think that's what that everyone's going to be interested to hear that. So I really, really appreciate your time. Um, you. So Sarah Taylor, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great fun. Um, I'll just mention, if anybody does want to follow your journey, is there some places they can look for you? I know I, we found you on LinkedIn and connected Yes, link, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Um, yeah, so that's uh, Sarah Taylor, weight loss coach on LinkedIn. Um, my, my other main website is um, www.masteringmenopause.com. I have a very unique healing nutrition protocol or program for specifically targeted at menopause, um, which I've had spectacular results with. So uh, www.mastering-menopause.com is my particularly focused program. But otherwise, people can just sort of uh, message me on LinkedIn. Excellent. We really appreciate that. We'll certainly feature those links. Uh, for everyone listening, you can check out our website as well as our social media profiles. So thank you very much, Sarah. We'll thank see you. you soon. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Aussie Ambitions podcast. We appreciate your support and welcome your input. So if there is a topic that you would like to see covered, please let us know via our website, aussieambitions.com or any of our social media accounts. And please subscribe to receive all of our updates. We hope that you picked up some helpful tips helping you to get to where you want to go. And if you've got a story to tell and are able to come for a visit, definitely get in touch.